there and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the podcast, we are joined by Lori Morton, who sold her company, Airy Hub, to JDM Technology Group in a lucrative 100% cash upfront deal. But before we get there, as you're going to hear from today's podcast episode, you're going to fall in love with Lori. And I actually found a video she did back in 2019, sharing even more about her story, which I think you will enjoy. So I have shared a link to that video over in the show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Also, quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support Built to Sell Radio, you can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you'll have a chance to leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews truly help our show grow and get in front of more people just like you. Okay, so let me tell you a little bit more about Lori, who, as I mentioned, founded Airy Hub, which was a customizable mobile app that helps facility managers efficiently control their building information and operations, including compliance records, blueprints, and employee training. Now, she worked with massive companies such as Netflix, Michelin Tires, GE, Bosch, and more. And as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. One is how to create sticky customers that never leave, how to use strategic partnerships to grow your company, how to sell the industry giants, how to position your company to be desirable to an acquire, and how to choose an acquire that best aligns with your core values. Without further ado, let's jump right into today's episode with Lori Morton. Enjoy. Well, Lori, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. It's super, uh, I'm super happy to have you here on the show. Uh, tell me a little bit about Airy Engineering. How did this business get started? Um, thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. Airy Engineering, I started in 1998. Um, my background is mechanical engineering. I worked for Michelin Tire and Fuji Film. Huh. Mostly I did machine design and maintenance management. So when I decided to hang a shingle for area engineering, I started offering the things I knew how to do, machine design, AutoCAD drafting, technical writing. But, um, you know, like a lot of small businesses, you start with one idea and then you hear what the market needs. So uh, a story I like to tell is um, I'd had the company maybe three months and I landed an opportunity to meet with General Electric, which is huge. They're a big company here in Greenville, South Carolina. Sure. And the manager was one of these type A personalities who needed some drafting work done. He wanted me to draw all the cubicles in his upstairs, 50 cubicles. He needed to hire 10 more engineers, so he needed to reconfigure it. And he asked me if I could do that drafting work. And of course, I'm going to say, sure, we could do that. But I used to be a maintenance manager, and I bought cubicle furniture. And I said, Frank, who did you buy your furniture from? And I forgot who he said, maybe Steelcase. And I said, if you call them, they probably have an AutoCAD drawing, and they can give it to you. And he goes, oh, I haven't thought of that. And I said, and if you promise to buy more cubicle furniture, they'll reconfigure it for you, you know, at no extra cost. And he goes, that's a great idea. You just saved me a lot of time and money. So here I just talked him out of hiring my, my little baby company. So I said, John, what problem do you have that you can't solve? What keeps you up at night? And he thought for a minute and he said, you know, my facility drawings, I've got two archive locations. I can never find the drawings I need. Can you solve that problem for me? And what engineer is going to say they can't solve a problem, right? So I said, of course I can. 
he introduced me to his archivist. Um, I went out and bought the book Access for Dummies and learned about databases, talked to a scanning vendor, and that was our first foray into document management. We scanned all their facility drawings, put them in a database, and made it easily accessible with their engineers and maintenance techs. So that's how we got started into that. Isn't um, that cool? So I'm thinking about like those movies where like they roll out the 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 HVAC system and the spy is gonna mm-hmm. kind of like crawl through the HVAC system mm-hmm. to jump on the pounce on the robbers when they're whatever like those drawings that they lay out on the boardroom table where they show all the HVAC and the different rooms and the different configurations of all the rooms that's what you're talking about those, those that's exactly what it is yes and everyone has those drawings John so the problem we we solved with Airy Hub Airy Hub is a software we created. And it's uh, basically an e-library to put all those technical documents. So imagine a school district. Uh, we have a lot of school district clients, and they've got schools all over the county. A maintenance tech gets a phone call when he's at a school that one of the HVACs out. He has to drive back across town to the archives room, go through the drawers, find the drawing for that school, then drive back across town so he can troubleshoot. When he gets there, he finds out he was told the wrong room or the wrong building. Now, when information's in Airy Hub, that maintenance tech gets the call, gets in his truck, drives five minutes to the next school. As he's walking down the hall, he opens his iPad and pulls up the HVAC drawing. So look at all the time he saved. That's awesome. That's, that's, yeah. that's awesome. And, and so you came up with this rudimentary version, an, ex, an access da- database, was it? And at a, basically a simple user interface, I'm assuming. Right. And... You get, did you sell it to GE or did you give it to them? Or like how did, how, what was the commercial relationship you organized with them? So I gave them the database and they paid me to scan all the drawings and put the information in. So, so old school. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And this was in 99, yeah. early end of 98, early 99 that we had this first project with GE. Um, so the evolution of my company, we, we continue to offer the engineering services, the machine design, the drafting um, we even developed something called Knowledge Capture, where we help people document what people knew before they left, hmm. and the document management piece. We were kind of doing all of those at once for, for quite a while. We were selling that little access database and, and the service to load all the information. But then we realized um, so many people needed help with their documents. Not only those drawings, the big HVAC drawings, but all those little manuals that come when you buy a refrigerator or a microwave. Imagine hospitals have those exact same documents oh times yeah. 10,000, 100,000. You know, the beds, the MRI machines, everything has one of those little manuals. So we found out that there was such a huge need to help them find their own information that over the years, I just started narrowing down what we did to focus on the document management piece. And what and so, was it about that that intrigued you? Because I talked to a lot of service company owners uh, whether it's a marketing agency or, uh, you know, consultancy. And, you know, I talk about this idea of productizing or getting good at doing one thing or taking your service and making it into a product. Some people love it, but uh, there's a lot of them that really object to the idea of, of becoming commoditized in that way, object to being put into a box. So here you are, an engineering firm, every project's different, every client has a unique need. We get to reinvent the world every day. That's all great, but it's terrible for you know, <laughs> scaling a company. So did you ever feel um, conflicted about 
the idea of, of focusing on the access database product as opposed to the service uh, side of the business? Uh, John, I don't know if any entrepreneur is goes through not being conflicted about their services and what they're doing at some point. Um, so the quick answer is yes. And that's probably why it took me so long to phase out all those other services. Um, but yeah, I remember in reading your book how important that is to focus and do something really well. But the main thing that drew me into the document management piece, I guess there were two. One is that there was such a huge need for it, and it was really an untapped market. But the second probably most important was the recurring revenue. The subscription model is just brilliant. I tell people all the time in their business, if they can get to a subscription model, it makes all the difference in the world. And I remember when we finally got those, uh, those regular revenues coming in that could pay all of our bills. What a relief that was. When you run a services company only, like the engineering side and all the project work, yes, it's exciting. Yes, there are many highs, but there's also lows. And as soon as you rush to the finish line and finish a project, you've got to quickly find the next project. So it's a hard life to live running strictly a services company. Mm -hmm. So it worked out really well for me that I could kind of grow that software base while I was still offering services. Um, I bootstrapped the whole thing, the whole software development. So the services side, that revenue helped fund creating the software. And we did it slowly over years. We launched our first web-based document management in 2005. So we were fairly early into that world, but we built it slowly and building it slowly meant that I could take the time to talk to our customers. And, and John, that's another great thing of offering a service of putting the information in. It gave us so many opportunities to touch base with our customers. And we got to ask them, what do you need? What works for you? What doesn't work for you? So we evolved our software to fit what the market needed. What sort of pushback did you get from clients of the services side of your business who you were encouraging to move to buy the product? There were a few times where clients did not want to pay us to get all the information in up front. Um, and there were times I just flat out said no. We, we tested that concept in some ways. And if the information is not put in the database correctly, then it's practically useless. Did you ever you think know, about just doing that as a lost leader and doing it for them for free? It would be a big, that'd be a big ticket thing. Um, you know, it takes, I've got clients that have hundreds of thousands of drawings. So it, it can sometimes take a year or two years to load all their information. Um, but we don't make a lot of money on the services because we really want them to, to accept that as something they need to make the software useful. In 2005, when you moved to a web-based product, how many other competitors were out there doing what you offered? Um, it depends on how we define competitors. Um, the thing that's so unique about our software is it's incredibly intuitive. It's all graphic and visual. You don't have to type in any words. I actually spent a lot of time looking for other software that I could be a reseller for. In the beginning, I did not want to create my own software. Hmm. I just thought that was going to be too hard. I'm not a software engineer. I mean, it dates me, but my first uh, class in software was Fortran on punch cards. <laughs> so <laughs> I was going to be a reseller and I researched several products out there. They were way too complicated. John, my theory is 90% of the capability of software we don't use and that almost everyone that designs software designs it for the person who's sitting at a desk. They don't think about the, the actual user, the boots on the ground, the people that are doing the work. 
So it just failed trying to find a software that I thought was reasonable. The price was reasonable and it worked well. So competitors we have, their software was so different than ours. That's why I say it depends on how you, how you define it. Um, there were just a few and they were very big and very expensive companies. So when was the last time you had an employee make a mistake that ended up impacting a customer? Stop mistakes before they happen. With VidGuide, your video-based instructions pop up directly into the software your employees use. From Salesforce to QuickBooks and from Bamboo HR to HubSpot, if you use it to run your business, VidGuide integrates with it. As a Built to Sell listener, you can grab a free 14-day trial at vidguide.com slash free. So you had these these big expensive companies that were doing something similar, they, albeit mm-hmm. overly complicated and bloated. So you saw Anisha being able to come in with a very simple product. There's, you know, I'm 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 reacting to something we talked about offline, which is and something we you just mentioned, which is you chose to bootstrap the business using money from the services side of your company and really funding or underwriting the cost of development. Now, there's the one challenge with that model, of course, is speed to market. And right. you know, everybody who has ever sort of thought about entrepreneurship or startup or going to Silicon Valley and getting a VC-backed company off the ground knows that part of the, the kind of playbook is you got to be first to market and it's a land grab. And, and that's why you need the outside funding and the external injection of capital. And so were you like, were you worried that by going slowly and taking your time and talking to customers that somebody was going to swoop in well-financed and basically eat your lunch? Uh, Yeah, that thought crossed my mind. Um, And I was quite surprised it didn't happen. I'm surprised that other software companies don't do it the way we do it. Um, And then I also very early brought customers on board with Aerie, telling them this is our first, this is our beginning. It's just going to get better. You know, hang on with us. It's going to grow and evolve. What do you need it to be like? So even though we hadn't fully, you know, put that train track across the U.S. yet, we were taking on passengers. Um, So they were helping pay for it along the way. And then the more people we had using it, the more feedback we got, the better it got. How did you protect yourself from... In like getting sued by clients who said, oh, but Lori, we helped you make that software. You can't sell it to other people or we, you know, we, we claim some ownership over the IP because we helped you design it along the way. Yeah, we made it very clear that we owned it and they were just giving us feedback. You know, I love feedback. How did you do that? Um, often it was in conversation. Sometimes it was in the proposal. We're, we're delivering this to you, but Ari owns it. Um, and in the beginning, we got some pushback on it. We had clients who wanted to own it. Um, one big client said, oh, no, we want you to put it on our server. It's going to be our software. And I just said, no, it's ours. Um, if you want to keep using it, you pay the monthly fee. If not, you can go find another software. But the thing about Airy Hub, it's very sticky. It's kind of like your bank account. Once you put your information in your bank, you're paying all your bills on a monthly basis. It seems to be hard to switch banks. So once they had all their information in Airy Hub, we made it so easy for people to get to it. All the maintenance techs were using it. You know, they stuck with us. I read somewhere that over 24 years, and you'll have to refute this if I've got this wrong, <laughs> but you lost a total of two customers in 24 years. Is that is that true? 
Yeah, that is true. Oh, we put so much significance on. Yeah, we we care a lot about our customers, and I bet every company says that. But like I said, that service component had us touching them all the time and saying, "What can we do for you?" And I really believe that service has been waning here here for a long time. And people think it's just the technology solution that's going to save the day. I really think it's both. And in our market, facilities management, they are constantly being pushed to lower cost, to lower head count, yeah. do more with less. And these people are so busy. They have so much going on. So we stepped in and say, let us help you. Let us take a headache away. Um, for example, we offer the, the CAD drafting service to keep their floor plans up to date. And very few facility departments have a CAD expert anymore. So we have a CAD department. Each time a project comes in where they renovated, you know, this cafeteria, we update the entire first floor. Sure. Make sure they always have right. an Yeah, that's part of the... So our, our model is we charge a subscription for the software, which is very common. But then we charge a monthly fee for what we call library management. And John, that's actually optional but three-fourths of our clients choose to, to opt in for library management. Hmm. And library management is all the things it takes to keep the information current. The information for buildings has to be updated. Buildings, I think of buildings as living things. Um, hospitals are going through renovations all the time. And if you don't keep the information up to date, it becomes irrelevant and people lose confidence in it. There'll be no credibility in your system. So it's important to keep it current. So you've got two forms of recurring revenue. One is the software license. Two is the library yeah. management service, if you will. Right. Did you also offer one-off engineering services uh, as well that people could buy a la carte? You know, we do some of that still, mm -hmm. project work. Um, we don't do machine design anymore. We really focus and air down our focus. Um, we call project work the all the loading so a client comes to us and they have 150,000 documents. It's a one-time fee to load all that information. Got it. And if you took like a typical year, maybe a, a recent year, 2022, 2021, what proportion of your revenue would have been, broadly speaking, software versus library management versus project work? Yeah, you know, most years it was fairly evenly split. Mm. I would say near the end, it was probably 60% software and 40% services. Yeah, yeah. In the library management, you consider that a service? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Even though it's a kind of a recurring service, if you will. Right. That's super helpful. So you've got this, I want to go back to the stickiness. I hear you when you're saying you listen to your customers and you're a great customer. Like I hear that, but of course you're right. Everybody says that. So yeah. I'd love to push a little bit on that. How many customers ballpark? If you lost two, I mean, are you? Did you have hundreds of customers? Did you have dozens of customers? Like, maybe give us a sense there. Um, less than a hundred. Okay. Several dozens of customers, but some of our customers are huge. Um, uh, Prisma Health is the largest health care system in South Carolina. We have Carnegie Mellon. Um, Netflix is a customer. Michelin Tire, uh, GE, Bosch. Um, so we have school districts, hospitals, universities. Um, we're doing work with the federal government. Now, um, so here's, the, here's, have, the flip, here's the flip side of super sticky, like really, really, really high barriers to exit in 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 the form of, you know, you've uploaded all the stuff. It takes you forever to upload the diagrams. It, that can also come with a really long sales cycle, right? Because Carnegie Mellon or Bosch or 
all these massive companies and hospitals and school boards, they, they move slowly. So how did you like, how did you manage the sales cycle? Like what was a typical sales cycle? Did you learn anything about accelerating it? What, tell me more about how you sold the service. Well, you know, that evolved over the years as well. Um, but sales cycle can be anywhere from six months to two years. You write us a pretty long sales cycle. Building trust is huge, we found out. Um, because we're How taking, did you, do you build that slowly um, and you build that through networking and connecting. Hospitals talk to each other all across the US. So we connect our clients' hospitals with our prospects. Um, we go to conferences and trade shows. We found a great partner, a company named ArchScan in Maryland, and they would go to a lot of conferences. They do all the scanning and data entry, and they needed a software solution. So those kind of uh, relationships allowed us to have a lot of touch points. So I think building trust just takes a lot of touch points. Some people is great. are just pulling their hair out there, Lori, and they're saying, I don't have the time. I don't have the time to do all these conferences and build all this trust. It takes two years to win a customer. Like I'm busy. I'm on a, I'm on a, you know, I'm on a, I'm on a short leash here. What, what would you say so, to people who are in a hurry? Strategic partners. Strategic partners are huge. Find other companies that can help shortcut that. So find companies that can offer a piece of what you do, like we found uh, the company in Maryland. And finding these partnerships made a big difference for us. We, uh, we um, went into a partnership with Procore. They're a, a construction management software. They introduced us to their clients. So I'm short on time too. That's a hard thing. You can't go out and visit all these customers, especially when they start to spread all over the U.S. and even in Canada. Um, so yeah, the partnerships were huge. And, but philosophically, it feels like there's more here because you, you went slowly with the sales cycle to build trust. You built the company. It took 24 years. You never took outside funding as I understand it. So this is more than a tactical decision on your part. This is, this feels more philosophical, kind of more foundational. Maybe just help me understand your thinking about kind of going slow and, and doing it right. There's a, I like to tell people the platinum rule. Do you know the platinum rule, John? Isn't it like do unto others as you'd have done unto you or something to that effect? Am I something like that. So yeah. that's the golden rule is treat others the way you would like to be treated. Okay. Um, I'm a huge proponent of the platinum rule, which takes it to the next level is treat others the way they would like to be treated. And if you stop and think about that, you have to, Seek to understand another person to follow that rule. You have to take the time to listen. You have to respect another person. So that's a philosophy that's been in our company since day one. And that has allowed us to really find out what's needed. Um, and, and like I mentioned, we've evolved our software based on what customers needed. We started out with the document management. We added a space management module where you can look at spaces and turn on a filter to see the rooms in different colors. Hmm. Um, a good example of that, John, is during COVID, hospitals needed to see the pressurized rooms. There's positive pressure room and negative pressure rooms. Mm -hmm. um, for example, an operating room needs to be positive pressure because you want air flowing out. You don't want any germs coming in while someone's on the table. But the infectious disease rooms, you need those to be negative pressure rooms. You don't want any COVID germs leaving that room. Right. So with our software, they could pull up a floor plan in a hospital, select pressurized air, and they'd see all the blue rooms that are positive pressure and all the red rooms that are negative pressure. 
and it allowed them to use rooms strategically to handle all their COVID patients. So we learned that from talking with our customers, um, listening to them, respecting them. What did they need to see? Who did the um, selling? I did a lot of the selling. Um, I hired a director of operations maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, and she was in charge of a lot of upselling. So my job was to go out and find the new customers. We've had salespeople over the years, some were more successful than others. So they brought in some clients. Um, that partner company, ArcScan, I mentioned to you, they're great at going out there and finding clients. And they had a lot of clients. So they brought a lot of their clients to Airy Hub. But you were, did you, uh, I'll say, ask it a different way. So um, what did you learn about hiring salespeople? Like, what would you, like, what are the big takeaways for, because I think a lot of people listening to this would would be struggling with that would, would be, I think in, you know, in the same shoes that you are in, in the sense that they are the rainmaker for their company and they can talk all day long about what it is they do, but getting someone else to do it has been challenging. It sounds like it was challenging for you too to find just the right person to do the selling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that theme a lot. A lot of companies struggle with that. Um, what's worked best for us is to have someone who's pretty uh, quickly a doer who will take on the task and just make the calls and send the emails. In and this case, your operations manager is a doer, I'm assuming. Oh, oh she definitely is. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of the salespeople we had in the past. Uh, I've had some salespeople that were more analytical <laughs> and the, the ones that were more action oriented worked out better. The ones that I worked better with and I had better jihad with um, turned out to be more successful because we would talk often and I would share my philosophy, my strategy. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. And they would run with it. Um, so I've hired salespeople with a lot of experience before that did not work out. I've hired people with very little sales experience, but they had the right attitude and aptitude and the go-gettedness, you know, and they worked out better. How did you structure um, their compensation? Because, of course, a big part of a salesperson's compensation is usually the commission. And with a six to two, six month to 24 month sales cycle, it can be really hard if you're not eating between <laughs> deals. So how did you structure their comp, the variable comp? Yeah, that, that changed a lot over the years too. You know, we start out trying to do mostly commission, but because of the long sales cycle, that was, that was too hard. So we ended up with probably about a 70% um, baseline salary and the other 30% was commission. And, and then usually we would commission it over a period. So maybe over two years or three years or five years, they would make some percentage of the, of the recurring revenue, but at some point it would wane out. And that would encourage them to keep bringing in new customers. Got it, got it. So they would have a bit of a tail to it, but not in perpetuity, so to speak. Right. I mean, this business, gosh, this business sounds like a, like a beautiful uh, acquisition target. I mean, sticky customers, two clients lost in 24 years. I mean, this is a, a private equity group's uh, dream come true, a business like this in a vertical market, not a lot of competition, high barriers to entry. I mean, this is golden. I mean, did you have a sense of what it could be worth? Like, were you seeing you know, benchmarks in the marketplace and starting to formulate in your own mind what you thought it might be worth? Uh, it's funny, John. I had absolutely no idea what it was worth. Um, you know, I'm busy running the company and, and wanting to grow it. Just like most entrepreneurs, I had my sights on selling it one day to someone, but I didn't know how to value it. 
And I talked with several of my advisors. Um, I even spent a day with an M&A company. I paid them to train me for a day to learn more about what it takes, how do you value it. And just about everyone I spoke with said, it's all about profit. It's all about EBITDA. And I just didn't agree with that. I felt like it's about the recurring revenue. And the way I grew Airy is I'm, we were almost always profitable. I think in 24 years, we had two years where we were negative. So all the others, we showed a profit. But I put as much money back into the software as I absolutely could. So we had a very small profit each year, but that was by design. So if you were to look at our, our profit over the years, you probably wouldn't value us very much. So it frustrated me that so many people I spoke with said, oh, it's about profit, it's about EBITDA. Um, I kept talking with people and talking with people until I finally met one person who said, well, you know, with the, with the SaaS company, it's about recurring revenue. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I really had no idea what the company was worth until I had the first offer on the table. And the first offer, so so can you talk about, uh, so let's, let's back up. So this advisor says, look, it's, it's really you know, a SaaS business, a software as a service business. It's really about recurring revenue. Did they give you at that point any sense of what multiple of recurring revenue you could potentially expect? Like any sort of ranges that they put in your head? There, you know, there's such a wide range. I saw anywhere from two to four is typical, all the way six to nine. I mean, I saw some crazy numbers just doing research on the internet. So if we want to jump into the acquisition story, I can tell you just a little bit about that, yeah, how I came to that. Yeah. Um, so when I got that first offer, it was uh, it was pretty cool. I had someone wanting to pay me a lot of money. Wait, is this unsolicited? You Or did, did you right. hire an advisor to, to, to represent you? Uh, Unsolicited. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I felt like I needed to know more. Was that offer valid or not? Because I didn't want to give my company away and I didn't want to lose an opportunity either. Um, that's when I hired a company on an hourly basis. It's, uh, the company is now CFO and they handle mergers and acquisitions. And I, and I knew one guy that worked there. So I said, can I hire you on an hourly basis just to look over these numbers and tell me what you think? And that turned out to be a great thing. Um, they went through all my numbers and they came back and said, that offer is low. You could get more for the company. We think you could get twice as much. What was the offer, the, the, this one that you didn't accept? On um, revenue or whatever you want to say. Yeah, it was, uh, it was around two times revenue. Mm -hmm. Two times recurring revenue. Yes. Or two times total revenue. Let me think. When was that offer that came in? It was um, it was around two times total revenue. Okay, okay. So they're probably then. valuing the recurring revenue slightly higher, the service revenue slightly lower, but it all right, ended right. at about two times. You total. know, it was an unsolicited offer. So yeah. So anyway, that that was the catalyst to get me to jump in and understand more about how companies are valued. Yeah, and what did you learn? I learned it was worth much more than that. <laughs> like how? Like what? What did you like when you got into it? What did you discover? Um, at first, I didn't value the services side as recurring revenue. And this company said, oh, no, absolutely. You're charging them every month the same amount, month after month for 10 years, 12 years. It is absolutely ARR. So that was kind of cool to learn that. This is the, the library management revenue that 75% right, right, right. of your customers were, were using you for. Got it. So yeah. you had the software license as recurring revenue. You knew that was ARR, but you, yeah. you came to learn that the library management 
even though it wasn't technically software, would still be considered ARR. Okay, great. That's super helpful. What else did you learn? Um, they offered to take me to market. They offered to start, I think, start the process, they call it. Yeah. Um, so it was nice. And it was nice that I was able to get some great information from them. But I just told them I wanted to sit on it for a little while. Um, so what I did next was, I'm sure most business owners get these unsolicited emails. You know, dear president, we want to buy your company. We want to invest in your company. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would get at least one a week, sometimes two a week. And so um, I started responding to some of those. And I would pick and choose which ones I would respond to, the ones that seemed somewhat relevant, at least got, you know, my gender right, and one Mr. Morton. So, <laughs> um, and I started having conversations and that taught me a lot because it's different talking about selling your company versus selling your product. Much different. What did you find different about it? Um, I had to look for all the ways our company is valuable to an acquirer rather than what our software can bring to the table. Um, I, looked, I, I learned to talk about the things I felt like um, a potential buyout might look for, like the, the incredible market opportunity. I did more research on the market to find out exactly who were the competitors. I did more work to find out what they were charging than I'd done before. Um, I started segmenting our income. You know, which sector is bringing in the most? Is it hospitals? Is it university? Is it private sector? Um, you know, it caused me to think about it differently than what I'd done trying to sell just the software. Mm -hmm. And I created a value proposition document and that document, it changed so much over the course of the year of me going through this exercise because I kept learning. To be Many clear, of the, the value proposition was not of buying the software. It was of buying the company. You create a right. major, here's the value proposition. We're a growing market. There's all this upside, right. that kind of stuff. Got yeah, it. First, I created a 28-pager and I kept narrowing it down. <laughs> um, and I got it down to a front and back page as a summary. But yeah, that, that value proposition document was so important. It helped me think about my business completely differently. And it helped me fine tune my language and learn to talk about it with a prospective buyer or an investor. And a lot of the companies I engaged with, um, they came back and said, no, you're too small. We need a company that's 10 million ARR or whatever. You know, come back to us when you're bigger. Um, but well, I learned you with each one. ARR? Um, we had already hit a milestone probably a year before of a million okay. in ARR. So we were doing really well. Um, and, and COVID actually worked out well for us. The, uh, when COVID first hit in 2020, our revenues dropped a little just because everyone kind of buckled down with their money. Sure. But then they really shot up in 21 and, and in 2022 because everyone realized they needed access to the information and we had all their information in the cloud. So, um, so yeah, things started really ramping up for us revenue-wise. Yeah, I would imagine COVID would have also made clear the power of the cloud over having it in a dusty mm -hmm. you know closet or shelf somewhere in a hot in a hospital you know or worse a school that was locked up you know like you can't access these things you couldn't for a period of time but oh my gosh the usage of our software skyrocketed during covid especially hospitals you know sure. they were still doing everything and more so they needed that information yeah uh, one of the positive rooms you were describing i mean that must have been a huge part of what oh it was huge so you get this kind of low ball offer for two times revenue and you kind of hum and haw, and then you educate yourself. I, I love the educational process. One of the things that I think some people might be wondering is if you take all those meetings with those people who email you once a week, 
isn't it eventually going to get out to the market, to your customers, potentially to your employees that Lori's thinking of selling? Yeah, yeah. I tried to be careful about that. I, I was a little concerned of that as well. I bet in total over a year span, I had maybe 10 of these meetings. So I didn't do them all the time and I tried to be thoughtful about it. Um, and I actually always had the meetings at a remote location, not at work in my office, my virtual meetings, just so no one would walk up and overhear what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that, that was a thought that crossed my mind. Was there any other way to protect the confidentiality of those meetings? I mean, did you get like a verbal commitment from them to keep the conversation quiet or? Oh, I always got a signed NDA. Signed and it was usually, it was my NDA, which, you know, I felt was stronger. Um, so yeah, I would never talk with them without them signing something. Yeah. Okay. That's super helpful. So you, you went, you had them sign an NDA, you met with them externally at a, like a independent location. That's great. So where does it go from there? Are you, are these, are these solicitors that these 10 conversations, are they, are they starting to increase their offers from the kind of two X revenue? Or are you starting to get a sense that there may be more on the table? Um, yeah, I started getting a sense there was more. I felt like the more I talked about my company, the more ideal it was for an inquirer, an acquirer to take it. Um, it's an emerging market and we were early to market. We had a stable product and we were doing work with the federal government, which takes a ton of effort. Um, your software has to be just locked down. Um, and then we, we got a patent on our software that came in early 2022. Um, so yeah, the more I talked about our company and who we were, the more valuable I felt we were. And it finally came about that I ended up with two companies um, that were making offers, written offers to me, which is pretty cool. Um, so I guess you could call it a bidding war. It's definitely a bidding conversation. <laughs> um, and, and it went back and forth. Um, I ended up choosing the company, not because they were the highest number, but I felt they were the best fit. The, the other company offered me a lot more money for my company, but they also wanted it to, a big part of it, be in an earnout over two years. And, um, you know, I'm, last summer when I was working on this, I'm approaching 60 and I'm thinking, do I really want to work that hard for the next two years to try and ramp it up? So I ended up choosing the, the one company, um, JDM, there in Canada, because they just felt like they were the better fit. We, we were aligned on our values. Um, they seemed to get it the software side, what we do. And for them, Airy Hub was a strategic buy. They had a lot of companies that do um, facility management, um, like work order systems, asset management, but they didn't have anything like Airy Hub that handles all the information. So it was a, it was a nice fit with their complimented companies. Yeah, and, and can you give a sense of the earnout deal what proportion of the, the one you did not accept, what proportion of the deal were they uh, putting at risk in an earnout? Like, was it sort of a big slice? slice? Like, can you give us it a It was a big slice. If I, um, I, I'm thinking it was at least 50%, maybe maybe oh, wow. 60% was, yeah, it was a big chunk of it was earnout. Um, and they and they let me play with the earnout numbers and percentages and kind of tweak it a bit. Um, and, and I really thought about it. You know, John, if I'd been 35, I probably would have jumped on that. I would have been willing to try and reach and stretch and grow. But honestly, I think I had taken Aerie as far as I could take it. I felt like the next person or company to lead Aerie needed to launch it globally um, with a big marketing and a big sales plan. Um, I, I took a very physical, conservative approach. 
And so I didn't take big chances. I didn't do big investments. It was time for someone to do that. So I was happy to step back. It sounds like the, the perfect business because you you did run it so fiscally conservatively, which which served you well. But for someone uh, or an organization that had a higher risk tolerance, you could see how they could really blow it up and, and, and expand it dramatically. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think the new owners got a great deal on the company. Um, it was good timing for me to step back. My my only child went away to college a month before I closed on the business. And now I've got more flexibility. I can visit him in Wisconsin. So uh, yeah, it worked out well. Nice. Nice. What's the hardest part about losing both your babies in the space of a month? Mm-hmm. That's true. I'm running a business is a lot like having a child. I, I say that all the time. So I became an empty nester all within a two month, uh, one month period. Um, it was a little tough at first. Um, I'm surprised at how well I have adapted. What's um, the secret? Not so many, many of us don't. <laughs> so tell us your secret. I, I have so many outside interests. I'm a carpenter. I love to build things. Huh. Uh, during COVID, I built two tiny houses on the property. I've got 12 acres here in Pumpkin Town. So I just never thought I had enough time to, to work on projects. And then about a year and a half ago, I met a 96-year-old bowl turner, and I was amazed when I met her. She was standing on her lathes turning a large maple bowl, and I said, you know, that's, I want that to be me one day. Um, so I'm jumping into bowl turning. I'm learning all kinds of new things. I just love working with wood. So I think the trick is to have things that you're excited about. Well said, Lori. It, forgive me. What is a bowl turner? What, what is that? Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's a lathe. It's putting a stick of wood on a lathe and it's spinning and you're using a tool and you're shaving it down and turning it into a bowl. So I've made three bowls so far. <laughs> so tactile and physical. It's so interesting. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's been good. Um, I'm, I'm having fun with it. Yeah. I'm surprised actually at how easy it was for me to back away from Mary. Because like you said, it's like my first child. Uh, but I tell people, you know, the analogy is like... Um, when you have a child and you pay attention to every little thing the first you know weeks months of their life and then you slowly have to start letting go and let them grow and evolve and eventually they learn to drive a car so you have to you know teach them the rules and hope that they'll do the right thing and then at some point your child's going to go off to college and that's when you've hired these great managers who can take care of all the day-to-day stuff and Ari went through all those stages great managers in place to take care of the day-to-day things so i could focus on big picture but then Ari came back home and lived in my basement for a while. <laughs> so selling Ari was like, my baby just got married to a foreigner and moved to Europe. <laughs> so, you know, you're kind of happy and sad at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Go back to the offers for a second. I think a lot of our listeners may get the same type of options where there's a, a shiny ball kind of offer, which is throws out a big number, but... The, you know, the, it's usually contingent on an earnout, mm-hmm. and then there may be uh, a smaller, lower offer, but it may be sort of more cash up front, more guaranteed cash. When, and I just want to pressure test that with you. The M and A professionals refer to a downstroke, which is the portion of an earnout deal which is which is guaranteed effectively. Um, was the downstroke on the the one you didn't take lower than the ultimate one you did take? Does that make sense? Like, were you effectively taking risk in not in not accepting that deal? 
Wow. I never thought about the numbers that way. Um, no, I don't think the downstroke offer of the earnout was higher than the deal I made. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So you were, you were, yeah. I mean, you were getting more upfront and yeah. It was definitely an apples to orange comparison thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and how did a lot of times private equity groups or software company holding companies um, will will do and if you can't talk about this I totally understand you, you can just tell me I can't talk, uh, say anything but they'll do like a, a rollover of equity where you take some of your proceeds and you roll it into a new entity did you roll any equity uh, in selling to JDM? Um, no, I don't think so. If I understand the question correctly. Okay. So it was, it was strictly a, a cash deal. Yeah. yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, some, some deals, not all of them, but some of them have that rule. And I just wondered in, in your case, well, it's super helpful. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled that you were able to, uh, to sell this business in such an efficient way and, and learn so much along the way. What was the biggest difference between, you mentioned you had 10 or so of these conversations with potential acquirers and you learned a ton along the way. Like, could you think about the biggest difference between the way you talked about the company in the first meeting and the way you talked about the company in the 10th meeting? Yeah, I think in the beginning, I definitely came across as pretty naive and I told them up front, I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, you know, I didn't present it as the strong, robust company it really was because I was so unsure how to talk about it. Um, I spent more time talking about the product, the software, than the actual business model I created. So, um, you know, and the person on the other end loved hearing about the software. It's super cool, but that wasn't why they were talking to me. So um, I definitely spent time and thought into thinking about what they needed to hear instead of what I wanted to say. And by the 10th conversation, I felt so much more confident. And I said, look, here's what we are. Here's what we do. Here's the seven reasons you should want to buy us. And, what and here's where seven? I think it's value. Um, the emerging market, the low churn rate on customers, um, single owner, no debt, diverse client base, um, the healthy recurring revenue model, um, I think the uh, the stability of our company, the credibility of our software, you know, the patent and the, the working with the federal government, all those things are huge pluses for someone acquiring a company. I want to buy it. You sure it's not still for sale? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, are you up for a quick lightning round of questions before I sure. let you go? Okay. Absolutely. So these only take a couple of word answers, but you can, I'll ask the question. You can take as long as you want to answer the question. But uh, my first question is you talked to 10 potential acquirers. What was the slimiest trick that a potential acquirer tried to play on you? Hmm. Um, I had one that wanted to log into our software. They wanted to play with it. So I, I thought that was, yeah, not, not going to happen. Um, log into like master to be control. a user so they could go in and yeah click around and I'm like, nah, I'll show you what you need to see. Um, that was one. Um, the, the company that ended up buying us, um, they seemed to not understand that I did not want to close on the business the day I was moving my son into college. 
Um, and they said, but why can't you just, you know, send him up there and you still close? I'm like, no, nah, that's not going to happen. So that's not really slimy that, yeah, they just didn't get it. Um, but they eventually agreed and we pushed the close out a month so I could get him moved in. Um, but fortunately I didn't run into a lot of sliminess. Yeah. What was the biggest mistake that you made in hindsight that you think, oh man, I wish I could do that over again in the process of selling your company? I wish I had talked to my employees a little bit more years before I did this. I think many of them were just shocked when I ended up selling the company. Part of the LOI was I wasn't allowed to talk with them about it. And I understand why that's in place. It was hard for me. I usually am pretty transparent. And I think if I could do it all over again a couple years prior, I would have started letting them know, you know, my goal one day is to retire. And here's what retirement looks like for me. I'll make sure I find a good home. I'll find someone that can run the company. Um, so it was hard for me to keep a secret from these people that I really cared about. Um, and couldn't divulge until the last minute. So I would have communicated something earlier, even if it wasn't about the exact deal. At least they would have had an idea. Hey, this is going to happen one day. Yeah. And what was the lowest emotional point you reached during the process of selling? I think the day of was emotional for me. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, because I now dropped this bombshell on these 22 employees, um, had some of them crying as we were telling them, and that was that pulled in my heartstrings. Um, and then the new company that came in, they, they fired two people on day one, feeling like they could backfill their position. And these uh, two people were very much loved in the company, had been there a long time. So everyone was emotional about that. So that was probably the low point. That's a shame in that the day of was my lowest point. Mm. Yeah, that's that's difficult. Were you aware that those two redundancies existed? Like, that is it pretty clear that they would not need those two people? Mm -mm. I, I, okay. I, yeah. It, you know, when I guess when the new buyer comes in, they immediately want to do some things to improve the bottom line and make it better. And, you know, it would have been nice if they could have sought to understand what those people do. Yeah. Um, or at least had a conversation about it. So I get why they had to do it. Um, it was emotional though. And, you know, people saw these two employees very upset and you know, crying and unpacking, packing their desk up and leaving. So that, that was a hard day. Yeah, I bet. I bet. What, what about the high? What was your, as you think about selling a business, I've heard it described as sort of an emotional roller coaster. There's these very heavy lows, but occasionally there are highs as well. What, what would you say is your emotional high to the process? It was incredibly exciting to get these offers coming in, um, especially with these two companies. And and the hard part is probably the hardest part, too, is going back and forth between these two companies. Mm. Um, John, if I had to do something over again, I yeah. think I would probably hire an M&A company to do all that because I was not very comfortable being in the middle of this back and forth between the numbers. Although it was still pretty exciting when I would get the email saying, OK, we're going to offer you this. And three days later, OK, we're going to offer you this. Um, so anyway, I guess you, you might give up some of those highs if you give it to an M&A company, but that was uh, exciting and stressful at the same time. Yeah. And, yeah. and like so many people that go through this, you still have to run your business. <laughs> you, know, you can't stop the train so you can do all this stuff. You still have to do everything else. Yeah, I'm a big believer in using an M&A professional for no other reason other than mm. just because you've got to focus on your business. Yeah. That's what they do. It's the art of negotiation, and it's hard to do it if you're... Yeah. And they also provide sort of a foil for, you know, the emotional ebbs and flows when you're trying to get through a deal. You know, they can sort of cushion some of the emotion of the whole thing. So... Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting sort of 
do-over or, or thought for sure. Um, as you prepared to go through this process, how did you educate yourself? You, you had these 10 conversations with prospective buyers that were educational, but were there other sources that you could point our listeners to? Um, I've heard of a book called M&A for Dummies. I, I, don't, I haven't read it, so I can't say firsthand, but were there any books or anything that you read that you found to be helpful? Yeah. Um, well, early on, I read the book E-Myth Revisited. Great book. Um, Michael Gerber. Right, yeah. Ger yes, Ger yes. Yeah, um, that was a great book. And it really helped me with my mindset of getting the company ready to get to that point. Um, and I read most of your book, Built to Sell. That was a good Most of it. Resource. What are going to do to finish this thing already? <laughs> but then I sold my company. So. <laughs> um, uh, and then the, um, what's it called? Multitasking is a lie or something like that. That's a cute little book. And I recommend it to a lot of business owners. Oh, I haven't um, read that one. Okay. We'll look that one up. You know, I, I think uh, to, to sound gender biased, like a lot of women fall into the multitasking mindset that we think we can do everything all at the same time. And it's a nice little eye-opening book that really you lose a lot of efficiency when you try and do everything at once. So that little book helped me to know I had to focus. Was it um, Stephen so Covey who said like, the key to success is like, you start every morning, you write your list of things to do, and you stack rank them for the most important to the least important, and then you do the first. And you don't <laughs> look up until that's finished, and when it's finished, then you do the second. Was that Stephen Covey? I, I can't remember. Sounds familiar, sounds familiar. I would start my day and say, what is the highest and best use of my time today? Um, another book that was really cool is the uh, the the little big things. Oh, I um, haven't heard of that one either. Okay. Um, Tom Peters wrote that book. Okay, and that's 163 things that you can do to make your business more successful. And the neat thing about that book is you can just open a random page and read one thing. Awesome, you know, and that's something you could focus on for the day. So those are those are some cool books. Okay. And other than that, I think. Um, the, one of the keys to my success is surrounding myself with really smart people. I had this amazing CFO. He was a part-time CFO. I tell businesses all the time, one of the best things you can do is hire a part-time CFO because he really held me accountable. Um, he was a good sounding board for me when I had ideas and he would say, but how are we going to fund it? <laughs> you know, what's the model for paying for that idea? So he kept me grounded. And then he had been through a couple of M&As in the past on both sides of it. So he, he was my confidant through the whole process. He was fantastic. Um, and then having a great lawyer, law firm was uh, hugely helpful. Yeah. You had um, shared, I think before we hit record, if I'm not mistaken, that, that you'd grown up in some pretty difficult circumstances mm -hmm. financially. Um, and so I'd, I'd be grateful if you don't mind sharing those circumstances, but also I'm hoping that, as a result of those, there was a trophy that you bought yourself to commemorate this win that maybe wasn't something you could have afforded before. So tell me a little bit about how you grew up and, and then what you did to commemorate this win. Yeah, I, I grew up very poor in North Carolina in a single wide mobile home that leaked when it rained. Um, so we struggled a lot and money was always the biggest issue in our family. Every single day, there were arguments about it. It was, it was hard. Um, my dad told me long ago that you'll never get rich working for someone else. So that's something that always stuck with me because he tried to have his own business. He failed at it, but he tried. Um, he died when I was 17. When I was 18, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Oh, my God. So one of the reasons I kept such a conservative fiscal approach to running areas, I didn't have a safety net. Um, I became a single parent when my son was two. 
and I didn't have family to lean back on. So I had to make sure the company was solvent every year. I had to take a salary, even if it wasn't much, just to keep things going. So I only ever spent money that we made. So I think that hugely affected my mindset. I think if I'd had some investments early on or had some financial backing of some sort, I probably would have taken more chances. I would have developed the software a little bit faster, maybe sold it in 16 years instead of 24 years. Um, But it took me to where I am today. It got me to here and it's all good. I love running my company. I could have kept doing it longer, but I really think Aerie is better off now with the new owners. I think they're just going to take it worldwide. You didn't answer my question. What trophy oh, yeah. did you buy yourself to commemorate the win? <laughs> well, this is pretty silly, John, but I bought a $30 toothpick. <laughs> Something completely not necessary. You get toothpicks Sorry. for free did in the restaurant. Toothpick? Toothpick. A stainless steel toothpick. Comes in two pieces. I know. It's completely ridiculous. And is, is, um, like a, like, like, is, it, is it practical for picking your teeth or is it for like, is it something, a showpiece that you put on a mantelpiece or what? It's uh, it's supposed to be practical. I'm a little bit scared of it's a little stainless steel toothpick, (laughs) but it's, it's completely frivolous. You know, before I sold Aerie, I would have never thrown away $30, you know, on something that was that frivolous. So uh, yeah, that's my little trophy, a $30 toothpick, but my plans are big, John, I'm going to build a new workshop. I'm going to build my dream workshop. Um, I've got a list now of all my dream tools I want to add in it. Um, so I'm super excited about that. So that's going to be my trophy. It might take me a year to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to ask what, how has selling your business impacted your relationship with your son who's away in, uh, the Midwest? You know, ideally, um, I wish I could have sold it when he was five, (laughs) you know, so I could have spent more time with him. Um, you know, I've got some freedom to go up and visit him more, which is great, but he's busy. He's launching out on his life. Um, I asked him one day, he was home at Christmas, you know, how he felt about me selling it. And I'd asked him before, do you ever want to run the company? And he said, you know, mom, it took you away from me way too much. I never want to run my own company. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So he's happy for me. He's happy that I sold it. It would have been great if the timing were different, but you know, it is what it is. So I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. I'm sure he's proud of his mom. Thank you for doing this interview. Oh, it was fun, John. Thank you. And there you have it for today's episode between Lori and John. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure you're subscribed to this show. And if you love today's episode, then I would ask you share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy today's podcast. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the video I'd mentioned at the beginning, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms used in today's show, you can head over to our episode page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Also, quick reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel, which is at Built to Sell Radio. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio and video engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week. 